I can do it myself. Have you ever heard those words? Do you know that instinct? So it didn't seem long ago that I would hear those words from our own children, whether or not it was trying to tie a shoe, right? I can do it myself, Daddy. Or whether or not it was making pancakes in the kitchen, much to Aaron and my dismay. Whether or not it was building sandcastles or even driving for the first time, right? I can do it myself. And there's something in us, I think, that desperately desires to be self sufficient, to make it on our own, to be dependent upon nobody, to do it myself. Like when we started that 18 and a half hour drive and I began the drive early in the morning last month over spring break from Sarasota, Florida back to Fayetteville. And with each passing hour that I kept driving, my wife would say, hey, would you like a break? Do you, do you want me to drive for a little bit? And I'm like, oh no, it's fine. Just rest, just rest. But inside I was saying, I'm going to do it myself, all 18 and a half hours. And I did. (laughs) Friends, what was the most uh, popular marketing slogan of all time? Right, it was Nike's Just Do It. You know, that was created by ad exec Dan Whedon, who actually died a few months ago. Uh, But when it was released... That, that motto 35 years ago, it was an immediate hit because it resonated with that notion that we can do it ourselves. This can do, this indomitable spirit, right? Nike's brand image as a consequence of that, it soared. They were a second-rate, second-tier shoe company behind Adidas and Reebok and the rest, and they became off that slogan the most powerful sports franchise, or I should say sports brand in the world. Right, this whole, I don't need anybody else, or I can conquer the world on my own, it is part of our national mystique, where the self-made man strikes out alone, and he succeeds against impossible odds. Friends, that is the American way. Is it the Christian way? That's the question I want us to be thinking about. This, I can do it myself, yeah, that is the American way, but is it the Christian way? Friends, questions like this bring us back this morning to our New Testament book of James. I invite you to turn there now, James chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 13 through 20. And if you don't happen to have a Bible, don't fear. We provide those Bibles and the seatbacks before you. Those red Bibles, you can find our passage on page 1013, page 1013. So let's go ahead and read now, James 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death 
and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, admittedly, this text raises some of the thorniest questions in all of James. So what exactly is this anointing oil, right? What's all that about in verse 14? Should the elders be setting up some kind of medicinal clinic down in the basement? Should we be carrying flasks of oil with us as, as I saw at a, at a Christian conference some years ago? Right? What is the prayer of faith? What's that in verse 15? Does that mean we should start holding supernatural healing services if we're promised that the prayer of faith, what does it say, will save the one who is sick? Does that mean that if one isn't healed, that it's the result of some deficiency in our faith? What's the relationship between confessing sins and even being healed, verse 16? And apparently James doesn't seem to think we need a meteorologist because our prayers can change the weather, verse 17 and 18. And what does all this have to do with wandering sinners then in verses 19 and 20? In many ways, this text raises, it seems, almost more questions than it answers. And I'm not promising to have answers to all your questions this morning. But amidst those questions, I don't want you to miss the, the forest for the trees, so to speak. And so I want you to first notice all the communal language in our text. Verse 13, is anyone among you, that you is plural, he's speaking to their congregation, is anyone among you suffering? Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Or verse 16, confess your sins to one another and notice pray for one another. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, right? You hear that among you, among you, among you, one another, one another. That's the constant refrain because James is reminding us that while Christianity is personal, it is that personal, it is also never individual, but it is communal. It is communal. I, I can do it myself. Well, not exactly according to James, right? We need one another, and that's part of what we're seeing right at the get-go. And it's clear we're in need of what? We're in need of intercession because prayer is mentioned in every verse from verses 13 to 18. We clearly need intercession, but it's also clear that we need intervention. The wandering need to be brought back to the fold. You know, if we step back and just consider this text as we're closing James in light of the whole book of James. Remember chapter 1 opened with a, a call for what? For patience followed by prayer. Chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. And here at the end of the letter, what did we hear about last week? Waiting patiently. What are we hearing about this week? The need for prayer. Right? That's bookending the whole uh, letter of James. And though those final two verses, 19 and 20, may feel like an odd way to close, part of what James has been addressing in this congregation is that many members are engaged in a kind of spiritual drift. Right, the spiritual drift. So James accuses them, remember, being what? Of being double-minded. Back in verse 8, double-minded and they're praying. They are those who hear the word but don't do the word, chapter 122. They're prone to favoritism. They're prone to selfish ambition, to quarreling, to, to boasting. Their tongues are adrift, creating division and deep dissension within the body. And so it's perhaps not surprising that James would conclude the whole letter with this call to cease drifting and to come back to the fold, right? Wholehearted commitment to God. So I think if we put this together, James's argument seems to be this. Pray for and pursue one another 
for that's how we get to heaven together. So pray for and pursue one another, for that's how we get to heaven together. And given James' love for imperatives, there are more imperative in James per, per word, more imperatives in James than any other New Testament book. Our points are going to be simple right from that summary statement. Pray for one another and pursue one another. Right? Pray for one another will be 13 to 18. Pursue one another will be 19 to 20. And just as a heads up, given the length and complexity of the first section, 13 to 18, not surprising, it's going to be a little longer than the rest. All right, So don't fret. All right, First, pray for one another. James says, verses 13 to 18. First, pray for one another. And he's going to call them really to pray in three ways. And though he's going to highlight the one another's as we go on, he first notes how they're to pray individually in all circumstances, verse 13. Then he's going to very clearly call them to pray corporately in verses 14 to 16. And then he's going to call on them to pray powerfully. In verses 17 to 18. So for you faithful note takers, those are three subpoints for that first point. We're going to pray individually, pray corporately, pray powerfully. So first, pray individually, James says. He starts there. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now that word there for suffering is, is a broad word. It can speak to trouble. It can speak to hardship. So these troubles are hardships. We've already seen many of them are in financial trouble. They're in legal trouble. They're being sued or they're being taken to court, right? There are physical struggles, struggles we're hearing about. So that word sort of encompasses all of that. And James is saying, when life hits a new low, what are you to do? You're to pray. You're to pray. Now, it's such a straightforward command, isn't it? It's right there. But when life gets hard, it can be difficult to pray because what do we want to do? We want to gripe. We want to grumble. We want to complain, right? We want to pick up the phone and text or call our best friend. We even maybe spend time lamenting to the stranger at the cash register, right? We, we might be tempted to do all these things. We don't always instinctively pray. And that's what James, though, says we're to do. We're not to start tackling all of our problems and seeking to solve them. We must stop first and pray. Because James says, before you seek to solve all your problems, you need to pray to the God who stands over your problems. You need to know that he is the one, as Wes said, who's in control, who is sovereign. So go to him who can actually do something about it. But we're not just to pray when we're hurting. He says, also pray when you're happy. Is anyone cheerful? Verse 13, let him sing praise. So here, here, James seems to be saying, offer up prayers of, of praise and thanksgiving and, and prayers of joy and do that in song, he says. So I trust many of you have smartphones. And what do most of us have on our smartphones? We have playlists. And maybe you've got a playlist for when you work out. Maybe you have a playlist for when you're cooking or, or when you're running errands or when you're studying. Friend, I wonder, do you have a playlist when you're cheerful? Do you have a, a playlist that is designated to celebrate God's goodness and God's kindness to you and his faithfulness to you. Not just a playlist that's kind of happy and peppy and maybe poppy, right, and, and it makes you feel good, right, no more T-Swift quotes, but you know what I'm thinking. But no, but something that actually explicitly celebrates God's goodness. James is saying you should. That should be the refrain of the Christian. 
It's one of the reasons why actually we have a Spotify playlist uh, for UBC. I'm not sure you're aware of that. You can go to Spotify. You don't need a paid account. You can just search UBC corporate songs. And the songs we sing, we have in a playlist. It's there for you so that you can use those songs to do this very thing and to give praise to God. Right? So when you're driving, when you're doing errands, when you're peeling potatoes, whatever it might be, you have an opportunity, whether hurting or happy, to praise him. Regardless of the situation, James is inviting us, really commanding us, to go to God. We have, as it were, a God for all seasons, right? Whether it's rain or whether it's sunshine, whether it's winter or whether it's summer, we can go to him. There is no situation in life where prayer is not relevant for us and is not right for us. But we're not just to pray individually. He says we're also to pray corporately. We are to pray corporately. And this takes us into verses 14 and 16, which is probably the trickiest section. So verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, there are a number of things I think we need to note if we're going to make sense of these verses. So stick with me for a moment. Notice James is addressing both sickness and sin. So he's addressing both the physical in the form of sickness and the spiritual in the form of sin. And he's even linking them together. So look at verse 15. The prayer of faith, a spiritual act, will save the one who is sick. Right? A physical issue. Or verse 16. Confess your sins and pray, spiritual, so that you may be healed. Physical. So he seems, James does, to be making a connection between sickness and between sin. And yet the problem is, if we actually stop and look at it, maybe our familiarity with the text doesn't help us here, but if we were to to think about the text just as James puts it to us, it actually seems backward. Because we expect James to say the sick person will be what? Healed. That's what he should say, the sick person will be healed. And what? The sinner should be saved. But notice that's not actually what James says. James doesn't do that. He says the sick person is saved and the sinner is healed. Right? He seems to have it backward. But friends, I don't think that's a mistake on James's part. I think in this particular instance, James is seeking to draw a direct connection between one's individual sickness and their sin. And right there, we have to be exceedingly careful. Exceedingly careful. Because we know that Job's sickness and his suffering was not the result of any sin in his life. And we know in passages like John chapter 9 verse 2 when Jesus is asked who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind, how did Jesus answer? Jesus said neither of them sinned. That's not why he's blind. God had other purposes. And so we're cautioned against drawing a one-to-one correspondence between a particular suffering and a particular sin, right? We're cautioned against that. 
And yet the Bible at the same time does regularly connect sickness and sin. So Psalm 103, verse 3, we're called to bless the Lord who what? Who forgives all your iniquity, sin, and heals all your diseases. Physical, right? Psalm 41, 4, David says, heal me physically, for I have what? Sinned against you. And in John 5, when Jesus heals the invalid, and then he heals him, and then, remember, he warns him, and he says, sin no more. Why? So that nothing worse may happen to you. It seems that failure of this man to continue repenting would have led to more severe affliction. Or you think of 1 Corinthians 11. There in the Corinthian church, there's all kinds of sins surrounding the Lord's Supper, to which Paul says, that sin is why some of you are what? Are weak and sick, and some have even died. And friends, of course, it's the first sin in the garden that leads to what? That leads to death. And yet it's in the new heavens and the new earth when we read there will be no more sickness and suffering because there will be no more sin. So we see, yes, while there is not necessarily a one-to-one correspondence between suffering and sin, that doesn't mean there's no relationship. Now, there was a moment in my life when this was pretty powerfully driven home to me in ways that I had not experienced before. So I was at a church in Louisville, one of the leaders there during seminary while I worked in the financial world. And the, the head pastor, the lead pastor, wasn't especially well. He had, he had had blood pressure issues and anxiety issues, and he had been to various doctors, and no one could determine what it was. He, it wasn't his weight, right? That was fine. It wasn't his diet. That was okay. It wasn't his age. He was in his mid-30s. It wasn't hereditary. I mean, he seemed to be a picture of perfect health. But one day I got a call saying I had to be at the hospital right away. Because he was in the hospital again, and his blood pressure was something like 200 over 120. Like he was afraid he was about to just have a heart attack and stroke out or something. And so I flew over, and I noticed that he called the other church leaders there, and we gather around him, and he's hooked up to all these machines and monitors. And when the nurse left, he looked at us, and he said, there's something I need to confess, and if I don't, I think the Lord is going to kill me. Now, you had to know this person. That was entirely out of character for him. And those are words you don't forget when you're hearing them from your pastor. Essentially, since he wasn't prone to make dramatic claims, he was, he was the furthest thing you'd think of as a charismatic. But he said, if I don't confess, I think the Lord's going to kill me. And the issue is, he went on to say, he'd been plagiarizing sermons. Plagiarizing sermons for many, many months. Longer than that, even. And the weight of that had grown upon him, and yet he couldn't bring himself to confess and to admit it. And it grew and it grew, and his health deteriorated and deteriorated until it got to that day when he felt this deep sense of conviction that if he did not do something, the Lord was simply going to take him out. And so he confessed to his wife. He confessed to us as leaders. He stepped down from the pastorate. And in two hours, he was out of the hospital. He's never had another episode again. He's, I talked to him a while back. Plenty of stressful situations. It's never returned. Now I recognize you could seek a medical explanation for all of that. All right, stress, okay. He, he comes out. He comes clean. The stress, you know, it's out in the open. He calms down, right? Heart calms, whatever. We can do that. But he seemed to know that something else was at play in his life. 
the physical was tied to the spiritual. And it wasn't until he dealt with that spiritual issue that his physical issue was dealt with. And again, last I talked to him, he's doing well. So I'm prone to think that James isn't just referring to any illness in verse 14. He seems to be speaking and referencing an illness and a kind of illness that warrants the ministry of the church's leaders. Because one thing we see in the Bible is that sins against God's body, against God's fellowship, against his church, those sins merit God's special judgment. Right? 1 Corinthians 11, maybe even with my friend. So perhaps James understood this physical sickness in the individual's body was a result of some spiritual sin that was at work in the larger body of Christ that maybe this individual was a part of, which is why the elders are then called to pray for the health and to see that this repentant sinner be restored. So a physical issue, but with a spiritual root. Now, when they anoint him, I don't think that anointing is, is simply medicinal. So anointing in the Old Testament, that's not how it was typically It was not done for medicinal purposes. And if it was medicinal, there's no reason why they'd have to wait and call the elders. Anyone could do it. That seems a little odd. So the next time you're sick, you don't have to pick up the phone and call the elders. You can't pick pick up the phone and call your doctor. That's a fine thing to do. But it's not sacramental either. So Roman Catholics look at this and they say, hey, this is our support for extreme unction, right? For last rites, if you're familiar with that theology. The obvious problem with that, of course, is that they're anointing this one for present healing. They're not preparing him for death. They're actually trying to prevent him from death. So that notion of a last rites, extreme unction, that doesn't make any sense from here. I think it's not medicinal. It's not sacramental. It's, this anointing is ceremonial. That's how such anointing was typically done in the Old Testament. So I think it's more likely they're anointing him in order to symbolize that he is being set apart for God's special consideration and care. And the point of it all that James is making is about prayer. The elders are encouraged to pray. and verse 15, we're told that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now again, right there, that verse has been taken by some to mean that if we can just muster up enough faith ourselves that any healing is possible. So therefore, if a healing doesn't happen, the fault must lie with our own faith. And friend, if you've heard teaching like that, that teaching is both unbiblical and it is harmful. Right? It's harmful because of the ways in which it can be abused. I mean, how it places the crushing weight of responsibility on the supposed faith or lack thereof of someone who's praying. I mean, can you imagine telling your daughter, like, hey, listen, you know what? Your little puppy died because you didn't pray hard enough. Like, of course, you don't traumatize a kid. You don't say that. And most of us don't think that. We shouldn't think that. Don't take that away from this text. But it's unbiblical because in the Bible, faith is always connected with what? With its object. What makes our faith strong is not our own intensity, right? what we can whip up in our own hearts. It's not our passion and our conviction, find that makes our faith strong, but that it's placed in a person, that it's placed in Jesus, That's what makes it strong. Not to mention the fact that the Bible never unilaterally promises that we can find physical healing in this life. When Timothy has a problem with his stomach, 
Paul doesn't call the elders and say, hey, listen, host a, a special healing service. No, he tells them to take some wine for it. Paul himself, he was a man of great faith. He prayed multiple times that the Lord would heal him, that he'd take away this thorn in his side. And when it doesn't happen, we're not told that the thorn wasn't removed because Paul lacked faith. No, it's because we're told the Lord had other plans and purposes for Paul's life. So somewhere in our prayers, we have to find a balance between never expecting God to heal and requiring him to heal kind of on demand. we got to find a balance between that. He never heals, and he'll heal on demand. And so what's that prayer of faith then? I think that prayer of faith, the best explanation, is what we read back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, where we're instructed to pray with the confident expectation that God hears and answers our prayer. I think basically that's what the prayer of faith is. That's my best guess. This confident expectation that God will hear and answer our prayers. And yet with the proviso, right, James 4.15, as the Lord wills, right, as his will is done. All of our prayers we know recognize are contingent upon that. Now, as to the unqualified nature of all of this, right, this one will be healed and so forth, just recognize you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Agree about anything, it will be done. Or John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. So I don't think we're to take those as absolutely unqualified promises, but rather they're encouragements Right? They're given to us. Christ gives those, those commands to us, those statements, as encouragements to pray and as confidence that God is able to hear and answer our prayers. So it's not to turn God into some talisman where he merely exists to do our bidding. That's not, that's not why we're told that. But notice the prayer is broader in a corporate sense. It's even in, a, in a corporate sense, it's even broader. Yes, the elders are to pray. And just notice that that call for the elders to pray is consistent with what we see elders do in the New Testament. What do they do? They, they engage in intercession and instruction, right? They, they pray and they proclaim. That's what elders do. But it doesn't stop with the elders. Verse 16, James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, side note, because I know all of you love church history as much as me, it's actually that verse that led to the founding of the Methodist movement. That was their sort of their verse, their rule, when they would gather together in their little societies and their homes, and out of which grew Methodism. All right, nonetheless, there's your little historical tidbit. But James saying this kind of one another ministry, he's saying this kind of one another ministry is actually expected of all of us. It's one of the reasons, friends, we have, like we had this morning, corporate confessions in our own service as we confess our sins. Friend, when was the last time you confessed your sins to someone else? Just think about it. When was the last time you confessed your sins to someone else? And recognize that presumes we're in Christian community, we're in a church family. It also presumes we have the kind of friendships in our church family where we feel free to share those struggles. Friends, that's why we need discipling relationships with one another, where we can confess our sins and where we can't do this, we can pray for one another. Or that's not just what some Christians, James says, are to do. That's what they're all to do. 
whether it's in a more formal group setting, a men's study, a women's study, where they're reading the Bible, praying together, whether or not it's in a one-on-one informal discipling relationship. James says that is just a normal part of church life. Right? Christianity, is it personal? Yes. Is it private? No. Our lives, our struggles, they are meant to be shared. They are meant to be born together. As we remember and confess in our own church covenant, we're to what? We're to bear with one another's burdens and sorrows. We're not to neglect meeting and praying for one another. So we need to be willing to confess our sins. But friend, you also need to think about what kind of person you are. And would anyone actually feel comfortable confessing their sins to you? Would you be known as the kind of person who could hear that and hold it, not share it, not proclaim it, not display it to others, but listen and share, lend a hearing ear, and, uh, and not condemn or dismiss their sin or condemn them for their sin or dismiss it, but no, pray for them and turn them to God and to the goodness of his word. And James says, when we can do that, such prayers, he says, are powerful. Verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. He's saying God's grace, it's a well that never runs dry. So we're encouraged to what? To go to him, to pray for him, that he has the power again to answer these prayers. So we're to pray individually, yes. Pray corporately, yes. But also pray powerfully, right? And like a good preacher, he goes to an Old Testament example. James goes to Elijah and You know, we're tempted to dismiss examples. I'm sure as I read it, you're like, oh, Elijah, of course. All right, whatever. Some of you may have been tempted to think that because I know my own heart. We can dismiss such special people. But notice what James highlights. He specifically highlights in Elijah that Elijah, verse 17, is what? He is a nature like ours. So Elijah, if you know his story, you can just actually read 1 Kings Uh, 17 through 19, and you're going to see all of what I'm about to say. Elijah could rise to the heights of faith and commitment and immediately afterward fall into the despair of of depth and depression. He could be brave and resolute, and yet right around the corner, he could flee and run from the first whiff of danger. He could be selfless in one moment, and in the next just be consumed by self-pity. In a word, Elijah had a nature like ours. Elijah was like us. That's what James is bringing out. And while there are many dramatic events in Elijah's life that James could have turned us to, so we think of his theological throwdown, right, with the prophets of Baal. We think even of how he raised the widow at Zarephath's son. He could have pointed to either one of those things, but he doesn't. He points to this example. And I think that's purposeful. Because in this example of Elijah praying, Elijah's praying because the people of Israel are living a double-minded kind of life. They had one foot in God's camp. Okay, God, I'll see what you can do for me. And they kept their other foot in the camp of Baal. Okay, I'll see what he can do for me. They were living drifted, divided kind of lives. And Elijah is calling them back. That's what the whole drought was meant to accomplish. Which is exactly, friends, is it not the situation that James's readers are in? So James highlights the power of prayer in bringing such double-minded sinners back to God. Right? God's done it before. He can do it again. And Elijah's prayer, it's not arbitrary. He didn't just pray out of the blue. No, God actually promised well before those events in Deuteronomy 28 that 
when his people turned away to other gods, he would send them drought. And when they turned back to him, he would send them rain. Elijah knew God's word. And so what did Elijah do? Elijah prayed God's word. In other words, he's helping us see what makes prayer powerful is that our prayers are biblical. That's what makes them powerful, that they're biblical, that they're prayed in line with God's promises and God's purposes. And friends, when we do that, amazing things happen. I hope it wasn't lost on many of you. You know, last, we've been praying on Sunday nights. What have we been praying for? We've been praying for more conversions. It's, it's great when people move into the area and join the church, but that's just like swapping chess pieces, right? We, we want to see people come to faith in Christ. And what did we get to witness last week with those baptisms? People coming to faith in Christ through the ministry of this church. That's awesome because people are praying. And when James wants us to see is that in prayer, a man like Elijah, a man like us can move God. In prayer, a mere man can move God. Do you believe that? Ask yourself if you actually believe that. In prayer, you can move God. I didn't say manipulate him. Right? We, can, we can go to Romans 9 and 10 and theologically work this out. But it is a true statement. And I'm guessing in prayer, you often don't think you can. Because, again, sadly, I know my own heart. I don't, which explains why I don't always pray as I should. Because it's easy to assume what? It's easy just to assume God's going to do what God's going to do. And thus, we don't believe our, chairs, our prayers will actually change anything. Somewhere deep down, we're not really convinced that our prayers are going to make a difference. And so prayer, what does it become? It becomes a kind of perfunctory thing. We know we're supposed to pray. We know we're supposed to kind of check in with God. We're supposed to maybe even check a box even worse. But we don't really expect anything to happen. But James says, look to Elijah, who because he prayed biblically, was able to pray so powerfully. So powerfully, in fact, that Elijah's prayers changed the weather for years. Friends, do you have a category for that? Do you believe that prayer has that kind of power? And if it does, should that not encourage you to pray big biblical prayers? You know, it was a number of years ago, I I read this past week, came across this, a number of years ago, there was a small regional Canadian airline, and it was around Christmas time, and they decided to do something for their passengers. So when passengers came and checked in, there at the kiosk, before they could get their boarding pass, they were asked, hey, what's your Christmas wish? What's your big Christmas wish? And no doubt some of the people were like, what is this automated virtual Santa asking me about my Christmas wish? They're probably slightly annoyed they're having to spend their time doing this. They just want their boarding pass. They want to get through security. You know, they go ahead and whatever. What they didn't know is that as they boarded the plane for that five-hour flight across Canada, all of those requests were being forwarded to airline workers and representatives where they were landing, and they were all rushing out to stores and to malls to acquire those gifts. And so when they landed and when those passengers went to get their luggage, they got their luggage, and they were also presented with their Christmas wish, what they'd just given to Virtual Santa a few hours ago. And all of this, the airline caught on video. And you had guys clutching, like, big widescreen TVs, 
And you had kids with tablets, and they're jumping up and down, and you had moms with new cameras, right? Elation on everyone's faces. And yet there's one guy who stands out, because he's looking around at the people jumping with TVs and cameras and all the rest, and you know what he's got? A pair of socks. <laughs> That's all he's got. A pair of socks. Can you imagine me and that guy? Surrounded by all those people with all that amazing stuff, and you're holding a pair of socks. You know, he probably thought it would have been really silly to ask for something big. But don't you bet he had? Don't you think he wished he had? If only he had believed, right? If only he had asked for more, asked bigger. If only he actually believed that kiosk could provide. And how foolish he now looked just holding a pair of socks. Friends, James is saying, don't make the same mistake. Don't make the same mistake. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. God answers powerfully as we pray biblically. And how foolish, therefore, we are not to pray more fervently, not to pray more regularly, not to pray more expectantly as we pray biblically. How foolish we are to walk around with a pair of socks when we could have so much more. But we're not just to pray for one another. To our second point, we are also, secondly, we're to pursue one another. We're to pursue one another. So we're both to intercede for one another and to intervene for one another. For just as Israel in the days of Elijah were wandering from the Lord, it seems that some here in this congregation were wandering as well. Verse 19, my brothers, if any, anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And, of course, the danger of wandering is that, at first, wandering, it seems fun, right? Wandering is adventurous. Why not explore a little bit? Why not create your own path? Why not go your own way until, of course, what? You're lost and you can't find your way back or even worse. And, friends, that's true for us spiritually. Spiritually, we can wander. And maybe in the beginning we feel even a hint of excitement as we do it. And we convince ourselves we're fine. We can convince ourselves we can wander off the path and we can still find our way back. We can still make our way back. But James is helping us see we often can't, at least not alone. Or we won't. We'll get to a point where we won't turn back. He says wandering like this is a form of sinning. So when we hiked as a family... It was not uncommon, you know, we'd get near the bluffs and all the kids would go over and especially William would go right up to the edge. And I hate heights to begin with, but of course, these are my kids and what do I do? I start yelling to him, like, get away from the edge. Don't wander toward the bluff. It's 200 feet, like you can't fly, so get back. Of course, that's what a right response is as a parent. Friends, it should be that way as we see others wandering. We should seek to call them back. James is saying that's what we're to do. Not just watch each other go right up to the cliff and fall over. No, we're to call them back before they do so. We're to intervene. Now, friend, if you've come here this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, part of what I want you to see is this sermon 
is that call in your life. Because one of the things the Bible says about every single one of us is there is not a one of us who hasn't wandered away from God. Like our first parents back in the garden, our hearts lead us astray. We wander away. It is our nature to wander from God, which is why God had to send his own son who did not wander but lived the perfect life, the just life. And he lived the life you and I should live, and he died the death we deserve, and he rose again from the grave victorious over sin and death such that all who trust in him can be saved. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, Isaiah says, and yet the Lord has laid on him, on who? On Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Friend, if that's you this morning and you, you know you are one who has wandered far from God, let this sermon be your call back. The Lord takes every repenting sinner happily and joyfully back into his arms. So friend, go to him, repent of your sins, and trust in him. But now for Christians, James says, this is also especially responsibility we have to one another, which can be hard for us because what are we all conditioned to think? What did your mothers teach you? Mind your own business, right? My mom taught me that. I assume your mothers taught you that. That is our way. We think we're to mind our own business. We're conditioned to think what I do with my life is my own business. It's not our place, we're told, to meddle in the personal affairs of others. And friends, it's easy to bring that same mentality right into the church. And though that's in a very American way to think, James says that's not a very Christian way to think. Those who have wandered and strayed into sin, James says, go after them, bring them back. That's not meddling, that's actually loving. So far from meddling, James says, that's not meddling. That is loving to them. And if we're church members together, it means the sin of others is in fact our business and our sin is their business. And you may not have a category for that, but James and the New Testament does. Which is a stinging indictment, I think, to much of what passes for evangelicalism in a lot of churches today. And many of our churches, what, the, the front door is kind of hidden or closed? There's not a lot of talk about commitment and one another's and, and lives like this. And yet the back doors of our churches are wide open. They're wide open. We're so focused on growing and on baptisms and numbers and people coming through the front door that we're entirely unaware of all the people silently leaving out the back door. And James is saying it shouldn't be this way. It is our responsibility to know them and to call out to them and to call them back. And the promise is that when we're able to do that, we can be assured, verse 20, that we've saved his soul from death and covered over a multitude of sins. Which means if, if you're a Christian and you're not a member of a church, you ought to be. And I just say that for your own safety. That's, that's not helping me directly. That's, that's for you. Now, it doesn't have to be some church, this church rather, but it should be some church. But if you want to learn more about this church... Apparently our discovery class today is postponed, and you can plan for next week. So next week, come, sign up, come to the discovery class, learn more about what this kind of one another life looks like, you know, through our own church covenant. Because part of what James is helping us see is that eternal security is found in church community. That's what he's helping us see. Eternal security is actually found in church community. 
So how are we to be guarded against wandering? How does God preserve us in salvation? James says it's through you, he says, through you, through the congregation, right? eternal security in church community. And members of UBC recognize we have a, a page actually devoted to this very thing in our own directory. Go to page 24. What do you have on page 24? Absent and non-attending members. Those who have drifted away. And that's not there just as an FYI. That's not there just for the elders. That's also not there to humiliate them or to shame them. That's there for you. That page in here, page 24, is there for you. So what? So you can reach out to them. So you can inquire of them. Maybe they've locked arms with some other body. Great, it'd be good to know. Let the elders know. But friend, often when we wander, when like sheep we kind of slip through the fence, it's because we wanted to. No, we, sheep just don't fall through cracks. right? They find their way through holes and fences. They find their way outside. And it's usually because they saw some nice green grass over there and they thought, man, that looks appetizing. I can't have that here. And I know I shouldn't escape the safety of the fold, but I'm going to go because I want what I want. And like the chief shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one, friends, so should we with one another. So do you. Do you take that responsibility, member of UBC, for other members who are here? Or do you assume that's none of your business? Do you assume that's meddling and not loving? Or maybe you just assume that's the elder's business. But James is saying that's our business together. So I can do it myself. If you're a parent, you've probably heard those words out of your child's mouth. And truth be told, though you may not say it, you probably think that as well, right? I can do it myself. It's the reason why Just Do It as a marketing slogan, as a campaign, was so wildly successful. Because it appeals to our nature to go at it alone, to be dependent on nobody, to lean on nobody, right? I've got this. I can do this. Just do it. Friends, that is the American way. But what I'm hoping we're seeing, that's not the Christian way. Not according to James. No, we need one another. We need intercession and we need their intervention. We need both, their intercession and their intervention because eternal security is found in church community. Which is why we're to pray for and to pursue one another for that's how we get to heaven together. Let's pray.